We are launching a brand new series today, and I am excited about it. I think there's going to be a lot of things in this in this series that speak to a lot of us in the room. And so I just want to start by praying. And so um, if you're here and you you would like to, to receive something, you need something from God today, I'm going to invite you to do something that might feel a little weird, but it's not weird. Um, if you want to just where you're sitting, just stretch your, your hands out, your palms open. It's just a posturing your body in a way that's saying, God, I'm ready. I want to receive something from you. So if you want to do that, great. Well, I pray. If you don't, that's fine as well. Um, but let's just pray, and I want to invite God to move through this series and to move through this time. Lord, we're here because your word and your spirit has something for us today. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now as you have been already, you are in our midst, you are with us, you, are, you dwell within our hearts, Lord. And so we invite you to move in this place. We invite you to, 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 to deposit something in our hearts today, Lord. I pray that there would be specific lives this morning who, whose course is altered, who uh, would go from a path of destruction to a path of walking into what you have for them. Lord, that there would be people here today um, in, in this place that you would shift into a place where they realize they are positioned where they are for such a time as this, and you would set them on a course to fulfill the thing you've placed them on this earth to do. Lord, we just, uh, we love you, and we're thankful that you love us and, and that you saved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hey, how many of you have ever found yourself in a situation where you just felt like um, you, you'd blown it so bad? You don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want. But where you'd blown it so bad that you just felt like God was done with you, really? Or, or maybe um, you found yourself in a situation where, uh, where you were just wondering, like, where is God? Because the situation just felt so random, so out of control, and so completely disconnected from anything you could make sense of in your life. I think probably if we went around the room, there's, there'd be a lot of hands that went up. But that's where the people of God actually find themselves in, right at the beginning of the book of Esther. So God had made a covenant with his people, with the people of Israel, a special covenant that he would bring them into the promised land. And then he fulfilled that covenant. We preached the whole book of Exodus. Uh, if you missed it, you can go back. Uh, he fulfilled the covenant. He brought them in as promised. But God had also made a promise to them that if they abandoned God, that if they turned to idols and they abandoned the ways of God, that they would be exiled into the corners of the earth. And that's exactly where they find themselves. And in 586 B.C., the Jews that were, remained in Jerusalem and Judea, the, the northern ten tribes has already been, been carried off to the scattered among the ends of the earth, never to return. But the, the Jews of Jerusalem and, Judea, and Judah were, were carried into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And, and it seemed all hope was lost. They came in, they wiped out, they burnt the t temple, destroyed the temple. And it seemed all hope was lost. Their, their, their national identity, the, the system, uh, the whole temple system around which their identity centered as, a, as the people of God destroyed. And they're hauled off. Everybody who was anybody was hauled off to Babylon in exile where they would live out their days, that whole generation, and die. But during that time, there was still hope because the prophet Jeremiah, he would prophesy that the days are coming when I will bring my people back and when I'll restore them. God had made a promise to them. And yet I'm sure going through that situation in a foreign land, in the midst of a pagan culture, they, they didn't see how that was going to work out. And then on October 12, 539, the Babylonian king, uh, there was a, a drunken, idolatrous night of revelry where they lined up all the gods of the other nations to worship the god of Babylon, and they were all drinking, and they brought out the temple, because they didn't have an idol in Jerusalem, so they brought out the temple goblets to drink and, and worship the foreign gods, and on this very night, we, we, we see in history, October 12, 539, Cyrus the Great snuck under the wall of Babylon without even a fight and took the city, and this initiated the beginning of the Persian Empire. 
and it would be Cyrus who issued a decree for the peoples to return to the land, for the people of Israel. But actually, in history, we see he didn't necessarily have completely pure motives because he, he did this for a lot of the peoples. He issued this decree for a lot of the peoples to go back, and it was a way to consolidate his power in this massive empire that stretched over all these nations and spoke all these different languages. In fact, um, in a historical, uh, we have what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's in the British Museum still. And you see the, annal, the annals of Cyrus rule. And he says this on there. He says, I also gathered their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. And so he felt he was working in his best interest of his empire, but God had actually prophesied this through the prophet Isaiah decades before this, that he would raise up the one he called his anointed. This guy, Cyrus, was the only king in a pagan king in ancient history to be called God's anointed because God would use him for a specific purpose at this time. And so a remnant of the people goes home, real, real small remnant goes home back to Jerusalem. Most of them stay in, in Babylon. In fact, um, even, even today, thousands of years later, the majority of Jewish people do not live in the nation of Israel. Uh, the largest population is actually in, in New York City or the largest concentration all throughout the world, right? And so at, at that time, Babylon is the world's center, the center of power, and most of them choose to stay and, and remain. It's more comfortable. Life back home is hard. Most of them don't go back, but a remnant goes back. It would be like, um, let's say, Canada came down and exiled us all uh, to Saskatchewan, our whole valley, and then just the people in Mac, the population of Mac came back to, to populate, repopulate the nation. That's kind of what what, what happened, right? But a remnant goes back. But the people who are back in Jerusalem, it's a struggle. They struggle to begin to even rebuild their temple and rebuild their walls and prophets. God sends some prophets. Uh, we looked at one of those minor prophets a couple years ago to just encourage them in that whole process. Stick with it. Honor God. Get it done. But they struggle. They wonder, is God even with them? Is God really, are we still really even God's covenant people? And all the people back in Babylon are wondering kind of the same thing because so many of the people back in Babylon without their, you know, the whole temple system and stuff, it's not easy to follow God in the midst of a pagan culture that doesn't believe in him, that worships foreign gods. And that's the, the middle of the story we find ourselves in, in the struggle where they're wondering, where's God in the midst of our circumstances? Is, is God done with us as a people group? And... To make matters worse, the whole Jewish people are about to experience something that will make them really think that God has abandoned them. We're going to see that in the coming weeks, and that's where we pick up the story. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Esther, um, verse 1. And if you're wondering where that is, find Psalms, the biggest book in the middle of the Old Testament, and just uh, go left a, a few pages past, yeah, go left past Job. And uh, you'll find it. And so Esther, here's how it starts. I'm just going to read through this chapter and make a few comments as we go. And then we're going to talk about a few of the applications as we get to the end. So here's how it goes. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This is like his summer palace. You know, it's going to be like 100 degrees this week, right? Anybody, you're like, I wish I had a summer palace I could go get away to somewhere in the high country. So this is where he's at. Um, at that time, King Xerxes, uh, so citadel, verse 3, in the, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And so if we see immediately, we, we, we discover this is going to be one of the main players in the story, King Xerxes. And he, he ascends to the throne in uh, November of 486 B.C., we see from the Greek historian Herodotus. He's, he's 32 years of age. He was the son and successor of King Darius, a good king who you know because of Daniel in the lion's den fame. That's Darius. So this is his, his son. 
He's the, Darius was the king that allowed the temple in Jerusalem to begin to be rebuilt. Now, Xerxes has a very spotted history, as we're going to see both in this book, but also history tells us when it comes to the people of Israel. In Ezra, um, he is the king who's reigning when he opposed. He's the king that opposes the rebuilding of, the, rebuilding of the, the walls of Jerusalem, and he, he brings accusations against the people, or the temple, rather, in Ezra. He brings accusations against the people. And so we see in here, he, he launches this big banquet in the third year of his reign. And, and when you go and look at history, it actually corresponds well with the Great War Council in Persia of 483 B.C. And the king draws all his people together in order to plan the invasion of Greece and muster the troops. So verse 4, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. He threw a party, right? I mean, this guy throws a, a huge banquet. Listen to this. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. They were there were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry. I'm not sure what that is. Sounds fancy. Um, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. And so here's what's happening in the scene. During the 180 days of the council, Xerxes displays his wealth and his glory. But his, he, he had a motive behind doing this, and it was to consolidate all these people from all the scattered regions that spoke all these different languages because he wanted to go and he wanted to conquer Greece, the other superpower of the day, and expand his empire even more. In fact, um, in, in a historical document, we see him quoted as saying this, For this cause I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellenspont and to lead my army through Europe to Hellas, which is Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. They embarrassed his father. He's going to go take revenge. They hurt the pride of Persia. He's going to go make it right. And so he assembles all these people together and shows them this vast, display of wealth in order to confirm to them the promise like, hey, if, you, if you're with me, you're going to get rewarded here. See all this money? You're going to get some of that. Kick back, kick back. And so um, actually, Persia's wealth during this time was legendary. When Alexander the Great would, would roll in a little more than a century later and, and, over, and take over, um, he would find he would just be blown away by the wealth of the Persians. They had forty thousand talents of gold and silver bullion, which amounts to twelve hundred tons, and nine hundred talents of minted gold coins, two hundred seventy tons. Massive stores of wealth, and so this is what the king of Persia. He pulls them together and displays all this wealth and wines and dines them. And the least of the people to the greatest of the people, he's trying to capture their hearts and convince them, we should go to war. Are you with me? You're going to be rewarded. Come on, let's do this for the pride of, you know, of my father that was embarrassed. We're going to go and we're going to conquer. And he works them up. And, and this whole situation in this big party, and that's what's happening here. Now, what's funny about this, and we, we lose this as modern readers because we're not very well versed in ancient history. The, the author of the book of Esther is writing these books, um, we think, scholars think, maybe a, a century or two after the events. And what we know from history is he's going to marshal all these people, he's going to go to war, and he's going um, to lose and be embarrassed. And so there's already, as the story begins, there's already, why is he planning this whole seed? The author is showing us the pride of humankind who thinks they know what's going to happen and they can control the future through their wealth, through their military power. But God is really the one that's in control. And that's the whole, really, really that's at the heart of the story. This story really isn't about Esther. It's not really about Mordecai. It's not really about these, they're, they're characters. But the main part of the story is God's sovereign hand at work to preserve the line of the Messiah, who would be the salvation of the world. That's the theme. That's what we're going to see. 
in here. Verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Kegger of keggers right here. And this ain't the cheap stuff, not like box wine and, and Bud Light. No. He's serving the good stuff, right? Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So you got the bachelor party and the bachelorette party right here going on. And they're partying hard. And so in the midst of this situation, what's so interesting is the Jews find themselves in this like foreign capital now city in Babylon and Susa. There's Jewish people around here that have been exiled and they're forced to live out their lives in the midst of a totally pagan culture that thinks nothing of God and has, has no value for the ways of God and is all about debauchery and all about all these different, uh, and idolatry, right? And so it's just this hard place to live. They're wondering, where's God at? Because they're the fulfillment of, of the promise God made in, in 1 Kings 6, 9. But if your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them and will reject the temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword, an object of ridicule among all peoples. And so what we see actually here is a people that's under the discipline of the Almighty God. A people, a nation that's displayed them. And so they're just wondering, where's God in this? God, is your discipline going to end? We've got people back at home on the ground, but man, it's going so hard. It's rough. It doesn't seem like any, and there's any progress. And we're just here trying to live out our lives in the midst of this pagan culture. We're like... The, the interesting thing about this book, it's the one book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And I think it's so profound. I think the, the author does that specifically because he wants us to see for so many people, we live in a world that really doesn't want to give a second thought to God. Life rolls on. And you, as a follower of God, as a follower of Jesus, has to figure out how to live your life in the midst of a culture that is um, either ambiguous, sort of, you know, um, ambivalent towards God or, or hostile even towards the things of God. And you got to figure out how to navigate life. How do you interface with, you know, with, with leadership? How do you do your job? How do you, how do you function in society, in this culture? How do, we, how do we go forward? How do we live righteously the way God would call us to do in the midst of a culture? It's right where we find ourselves in so many ways. This is exactly where the people of God found themselves in this culture. It's random sometimes. Life just seems so random. And that's the other interesting thing. That God's, that just watch for this theme as we go through this book. All these seeming random events occur. And if you're going through them at the time, you don't see God's hand in them. It's not till afterwards when you can look back that you see God's hand at work. And that's the point of the verse is God is at work. God is sovereign. When it looks bleak, he's still in control. And he's still, and the challenge is for all of us in the midst of sometimes the moral ambiguity of what's the right thing to do in this situation, when you stand up and you conquer fear because God has placed you in a place, wherever that is, for such a time as this, and you conquer the fear and you do what is right at risk to your position, at risk to your life, at risk to your reputation, when you stand up for what is right, you could be used of God. And he may be positioning you in the culture, in your place of work. In fact, so many of you, I know he's positioning you where he's positioned you for such a time as this. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he's drunk. He's smashed. That's what, in case you missed that in the Bible, that's what he's saying right there. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Not seven positions most guys would just volunteer for. Um, 
And if you don't know what eunuch is, go home and ask your parents. You're welcome, parents. Um, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. All right, just so you understand what's going on here. The dudes have been drinking for seven days straight. They are smashed. And Xerxes like, hey, where's my smoking hot wife? I'm just translating this into modern redneck language for you. <laughs> for those of you from Olathe. <laughs> just kidding, sort of. I always, I picked on Delta, and then I got in trouble because we had Delta. So maybe we'll push it a little farther to Olathe and see if I get away with it. So he's like, bring her on out here. In that one skimpy dress, I'm, I'm adding to the story. But this is what I think is going on in this situation. My favorite dress, you know, that one she wears. And, and have her just come up here and parade in front of all my friends. Come on. I don't know why he had a redneck South accent, but that's just how I picture him in my head. And so these seven eunuchs, um, they go out to get her. And it's such a crazy, it's such a crazy scene. Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. He was an angry drunk. And that's funny, but it's not at the same time. Because I bet if we raised hands, every one of you knows somebody whose family and life has been destroyed because of anger that escalated out of control or a pattern of escalating out of control um, due to the influence of alcohol or a substance. Right? Verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. These wise men are to be understood as astrologers who would sort of try to see the, you know, the cultic symbols in the, in the, in the zodiac and try to translate. And so the, these were the king's advisors, very pagan, uh, very demonic. Verse 14, they were closest to the king, and I'm not going to read them. Uh, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. He pulls together his closest dudes, also um, quite smashed at the time, probably. And they start going, what should we do? And deliberating about what we should do. And nobody said, hey, uh, maybe we should sober up and then figure out what to do first. In fact, this is crazy to us, but this is the fact of history as you read Herodotus. You know, within our modern culture, we think of drinking as a social custom, um, sometimes just, you know, in, in, sometimes just for enjoyment and, um, and so, social, you know, sometimes in a good light, sometimes in a bad light, we think about it, right, when it comes to the culture. Sometimes with ne negative, oftentimes with negative connotations, but Herodotus explains this, this interesting thing that the Persians would actually drink as they deliberated matters of state. I kid you not. Go look this up. They thought, hey, well, let's just get smashed and talk about conquering the world. Good plan, genius, right? They would deliberate when they were drunk. And, and here's, here's the interesting thing. So they'd get together, they're totally bombed, and they deliberate on matters of state, and then when they wake up and sober up the next day, they'd try to see if they still wanted to do what they came up with the night before, and if they did, they'd do it. But here was the interesting thing. When they deliberated sober, they would wait, they would get smashed to then decide if they were going to do it. You were like, what? And here's why. Here's why. They believed that intoxication put them in closer touch with the spiritual world. Isn't, it is interesting, isn't it, that alcohol is referred to as a spirit? And from ancient times, people have understood that there's something about the loss of control that happens with alcohol in large quantities, or depending on the person, medium quantities, right, that is very 
dangerous, that has the ability to bring you to a place you might not otherwise go. And you know this in your life. You know this. And here, here, here's the truth. We're, we're not a church that, um, that teaches that alcohol is wrong per se, right? I, I, I read the scriptures, and we're going to see this when we launch into the book of John here in a couple months. Uh, the first miracle Jesus performs is turning a bunch of barrels of water into wine. And it's good wine. Like, really good. Uh, the, the master of ceremonies calls together, <laughs> calls, calls the master in after Jesus does this. And he's like, what? You saved the best for last. Normally, after everyone has already drank the good wine and had a little too much, and they're a little, little smashed, then you bring out the box wine. But you, you're serving the reserve stuff later. Well, and he's, his mind's blown, right? And then all throughout Scripture, I mean, you, you see different things. But here, here's what I think in modern times. I think this was an issue for, for people growing up, some of us, and especially you that um, are a little bit older than me, your generation, uh, grew up really having this um, negative opinion of alcohol. And then as a pendulum swing, our culture has swung back to the part that we're like, well, we have a freedom to do that. Uh, we, we don't see that. It's not scriptural, right? And I think that's correct. However, we often, the pendulum swings, and we often ignore all the warnings in scripture against alcohol and all of the clear scriptures in lists of really bad sins in the New Testament that include drunkenness. We like to sort of glaze over those. And this is an issue, and this is a problem for so many people. And it has contributed to the, to the d- destruction of families, and it continues to. And, and to this thing in our souls. And I think the conversation, you know, especially in Colorado, uh, with our laws around cannabis and stuff, needs to go further and deeper than that. Because the issue, as we see in Scripture, is what's controlling you. What are you opening yourself up to when you're out of control? What decisions have you made or will you make or are you opening yourself up to make that you wouldn't otherwise make if you're in in the right state of mind? All right, verse 15. According to the law, he asks, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the king Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Verse 16. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the kings and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. And so here's what's happening in this scene. And it's so interesting as the author is just reporting to us what happened. He doesn't doesn't really offer, he, he leaves the moral interpretation to the readers of like what's going on here. He's just, these are the facts that build up to the story. See, see, we see these in modern terms of, you know, feminism or different things like that. And that's not the way that the ancient writers were thinking about it. And that's something you've got to understand because it's so important, whether you're going back and you're reading scriptures from ancient times, or if you're reading even um, documents, founding documents from our founding fathers a couple hundred years ago, that people understood and had a whole different view of society. And you cannot judge ancient texts according to current sensibilities. You run into big troubles when you do. You, number one, you miss the whole point of what they're trying to say. And number two, you assume things about their character that you shouldn't assume. And so lots of people have pointed to the fact that, that people twisted scriptures in favor of slavery in the you know, early stages of our nation, completely ignoring the fact that at the time, it was a 100% accepted practice in the first century and actually, the writings of Paul and the teachings of Jesus were the thing that ended up being the subversive teaching that would go on to inspire the people who worked against slavery to set the nations free. And so this is how people twist ancient texts. And so actually, the, the main thing that the author is focused on isn't, here isn't, 
you know, the whole relationship between men and women and the struggle of the sexes and all that. No. He's focused on the fact that throughout all this chaos and, and the whole story is full of just lousy situations and lousy choices people have to make and people with completely bad uh, motives. And that's kind of the world we end up living in, isn't it, so oftentimes? It's not always clear. And the point the author's trying to make is God's hand in the midst of all that chaos and confusion and randomness, God's hand is still at work. And the cool thing is we're going to see Esther, actually. So you see Vashti go, I'm not coming to your drunken brawl so you can parade me in front of your, uh, all your drunk friends, buddy. And you see the king obviously respond in anger. And then you see them completely escalate the situation out of control, which also, if you're familiar with the effects of wine, this happens, right? Some of you have been in bar fights. I won't ask for a show of hands. And alcohol might have had something to do with it, right? They escalate the situation to a national crisis. It's crazy. The women folk are not going to respect their men. And so the very king, who is not respectable, who can't even get his own wife to respect him, now is going to check out what they do. Verse 18, uh, this very day, uh, verse 19, sorry. Here's his counselors escalate the situation. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes, also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all women will respect their husbands from greatest to lowest. You will respect me, woman, is what he's saying. Yeah, how, that works good, right? Any guys uh, ever found that works? I've tried to lay down some decrees in my own house, um, like the cat shall not sleep on the bed. Man, I have to confess um, my weakness before you. Over the last three nights, my decree has not been followed. <laughs> it, it's just this crazy situation, right? And it's so, oh, we're going to see the New Testament in here. It's so opposite of the way of love and mutual respect and mutual submission that we see in the New Testament. See, the point that the, uh, that, that the author is trying to make here is that the Persian court is not a safe place because Xerxes, he held great power and he wielded it unpredictably, and his word was the law. There was no law above him. And he's making decisions from terrible motives with impaired judgment. This was a terribly dangerous place to be, and that's the point. A while later, he's going to, King Xerxes would execute, um, we see this in Herodotus, would execute um, soldiers because they were trying to build a bridge, and there was a storm, weather came in that delayed it, and so he executed the people. What? That's this guy's character. And so what he's trying to illustrate here is this is a dangerous place. Why? Because it's, gonna, it's going to make sense when Esther has to make a decision. The decision she's making we read it, it's like, oh, he's not going to kill her. Come on, he loves her. She's, she's beautiful. She's his queen. No. That's, this guy is unpredictable. This guy has his wife banished just because she won't come parade herself in, a, in this lustful way in front of all his drunk friends. This guy kills people for no good reason. Verse 21, the kings and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did, did as Memukin proposed. Listen to this. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Isn't that a crazy way to start a book if you, if you think about it? That's the first chapter. It's just setting up the story. This, this scene of this crazy, unpredictable, decadent, lust-filled, pride-filled, debauchery, drunkenness. And this is a story where God's people, I mean, this king is going to make a, a decision, 
and just blow it off to, to, to wipe out a whole people group without even a second thought. One of his advisors would be, oh, I think we should wipe out a people group. Oh, okay, whatever. Not even a second thought. And yet through that, through that, through the reality of evil that exists, that's something we're going to see as we go through this, and we're going to talk about that in context with uh, how do you and I live as people um, who value freedom and God-given liberties. But I want to just point out a couple observations from this. The first one is that is the pride in this guy's heart that first motivates him to go conquer Greece, not because he needs extra territory, but because they dissed his dad, and so he's going to go take him out. So pride is is considered um, pride is considered the root sin that leads to all the other sins because it's the sin that rose up in the heart of Satan when he said, instead of being God's most beautiful, wonderful creation and worshiping Him, look at me, look at how awesome I am. I'm I'm going to be like God. Who's God to tell me what to do? And that's the pride that rises up in the heart of humankind, as Paul describes in Romans 1, who replace the creator with creation. And because of that, decide they can live any way they want to. And there's no standard and there's no, there, there's no objective standard in morality. The truth is my truth. Whatever my truth is, you have your truth, I have my truth. It's, the, it's pride in the heart of man. And pride in the heart of land has led to countless tragic genocides in the last hundred years. More people in the last hundred years under communism and, and uh, Nazism. A hundred million people between Russia and, and China and these communist nations brutally murdered by dictators who, who hearts rose up in pride and says, we know better than what God has revealed for thousands of years. And so many times, it sounded great. It was for the benefit of humanity. I mean, you go back and read these. It's for the betterment of the nation, or, or it's for the, the, the betterment, for the benefit of society. Workers unite, right, among communism. But the heart of man that concentrates power at the top is always prone towards evil. Because the heart of humankind, as Jeremiah tells us, is deceitful beyond all things. That's why our founders set up the split branches of government like they did, because of checks and balances, because they understood this. They were men who were rooted in the scriptures and understood the hearts of mankind. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. Let me just say, some of you right now are struggling because you have a pride issue in your life that is causing destruction, either in your family life, or in a work relationship, because somebody has offended your pride, and you just, this thing rises up in you, and you refuse to deal with it. And it's damaging relationships, and if you're not careful, it can destroy your relationships. Scripture says pride comes before the fall. Is there an area of pride right now in your life that's rising up? The second thing is just this, this culture that they live in that anything goes. Ephesians 5.8 says this, You were once in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. So he's talking to followers of Jesus who have embraced Jesus. He says, hey, you were living like everybody else around you with no objective truth, with no set of standards, just living out your life the way you thought was best, doing what felt best. But that was supposed to be a past reality for you. Now you're in the light. Be very careful then, verse 15, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. See, we are instructed in in Scripture to, to search our lives, to be careful how we live to look at the habits and the behaviors and the actions that, that we have going and ask and put them in front of the truth of, of God's word and, and ask that through the Holy Spirit to, to give us insight and to convict us on areas where we're off course and to give us wisdom. God says, if you lack wisdom, ask. It's a promise in Scripture. He will give you wisdom. You got to ask for it. 
making the most of every opportunity. Because why? Because you have been placed here in such a time as this to accomplish something for his kingdom and for the good of, of your fellow person. Love God and love neighbor, your neighbor. You've been positioned. Make the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. That was true 2,000 years ago. When Paul wrote this, it's true today. You've been called to live as wise, not to live as everyone around you, not to get your set of values from Netflix or YouTube, but to get your set of values from what God says in Scripture and to live it out in your life, no matter what anybody else chooses to do. That's the personal call, making the most of every opportunity. Verse 17, he goes on, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? It's, well, well, sometimes he leads you very specifically, directly into something, and you'll know it when he does, or you'll get wise counselors and you'll discern it. But you have the revealed will of God in Scripture on how to live. Are you seeking that out? Understand it. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. In other words, careless decisions, foolish actions. I used to have a band, and we played at, like, a big bank party. Let me say, there's an executive of a local bank that probably has things on YouTube he doesn't want on YouTube. That's all I'll say. Leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The idea here is control. What's controlling you? Are you getting up in the morning? We have Our value here is biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. We're serious about Scripture, and we're responsive to the Holy Spirit as he, as he whispers in our ears, as he asks us to pray for someone, as he asks us to be bold and courageous, as he asks us to adjust our life to line up with the direction he'd have for us. Be filled with the Spirit. Submit. And then he goes on to say this just a couple of verses later. And this is interesting because this is the passage of Scripture that goes on to talk about wives respecting your husbands, that, that husbands, you are the head of your household. It's, it, it, this idea in Scripture, wives respect, but husbands, love your wives. This is that passage, one that's been taught for years. It's very controversial, and pastors are scared to teach, including me. But listen to how that whole passage, that whole passage starts. Husbands, love your wives, is going to go on to say, and give yourself for her like Christ gave herself for the church, that she might be pure. In other words, not this lustful thing like, like this awful king back there. There's a purity about marriage and about sexuality in the context of marriage and about the way we love each other that models God himself and the relationship of the Godhead and the Trinity. It's a beautiful thing. But how does it all start before he gets to any of that stuff about loving and respecting and all these things that great marriage courses and books have been built on for years? Here's how he does it. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. See, this is the model of godly authority and godly relationship is a mutual submission where we love each other, where we care for each other, where we honor each other, a mutual submission. So before we ever get to all this stuff about loving and respecting and all that, Paul says, I just want to set the stage, submit to one another. This is, this is revolutionary in the first century in a Roman culture where husbands dominated their wives. It's revolutionary. It changed everything in the course of history. It took a while to get there. But it did. I'm going to invite Winston up as we close. And let me just ask you this. What's God speaking to you about here today? What's he speaking to you about? You got a pride thing you need to deal with because it's damaging relationships? Maybe it's, a, uh, maybe it's an alcohol thing. Maybe you're like, I don't go out and get drunk and party and all that. Maybe you do, and you need to address that. But maybe it's a thing of like, you realize that alcohol has become something that's, that you need to get by to reduce the stress. And it's a point of tension in your family. 
and it's, a, it's causing destruction in your marriage, and it's causing something you're modeling for your kids that you don't want to model for your kids. And here's what I know. In a church that, you know, we're, we don't have like a stance against alcohol, we tend to swing the other way, if we're honest, for many. And that's, you need to go look at what Scripture says, what the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, if that's you. Some of you, there's actions of lust that specifically happen when you've had too much. Maybe that's an issue. Is there a lust thing like there was in Xerxes' life that it's got control of you? A lot of times these things go together. Or an anger thing, it's got control over you. What's the root cause? What if you eliminate that? What if you say yes, and you know this, because probably the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about this and tapping you on the shoulder about this for months or years for some of you. You going to deal with it? You going to do something about it? Your life, your future, your kid's future may be on the line. Second thing, you got to decide not to put yourself in situations like this. I mean, this crazy party, all this stuff, um, there were people that got involved in decisions that were ridiculous and horrible because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just want to talk to uh, young people in the room right now. As you go through high school, as you go through college, the temptation and the pressure is going to be like, hey, just come on the spring break trip. It's fine. And you know that the culture there is going to lead you into partying and a culture that stuff happens that that your values don't line up with. You know that. You got to make a decision. And the wise decision is don't put yourself in that situation. Go on a mission trip instead. Because when you're in that situation, it's very hard, especially as alcohol begins to fuel it, it's very hard to say no to things. And some of you, if we could go around the room and say, how many of you in the room have some regrets for decisions you made that involved alcohol? Can we hear like a yap? Yep. Like the people in the room that have lived a little longer than you would tell you, learn from my mistakes. That's what they tell you. Learn from, if you can learn from the mistakes of someone that went before you, you will be light years ahead in life. Don't put yourself in these situations. Single women in the room, let me just talk to you. Don't go after a guy that doesn't have character because he's good looking and rich. I don't care how cool his car is. I don't care that you think he can provide you a secure future. Guess what? If he doesn't, if he doesn't share your faith in Jesus, it's disobedient to Scripture. But not just that. You're setting yourself up for a world of heartache. And, and let me say, I know there's those in the room that you're in a, in a marriage where, you know, one spouse doesn't believe in God and you're struggling. Hang in there. Keep praying for him. My aunt's a great example of God coming through and rescuing and saving. Stay in there. That's what Scripture says. As long as, as, long as you can, stay in there. As long as he or she is okay, is okay with you following Jesus. Stay in there. But if you're in a dating relationship, where you're in a relationship with someone who, who doesn't share your faith or your values or doesn't have character... Dump the bomb. I'm serious. Don't get impatient. You wait for God to bring the right person into your life. You got to deal with your stuff, guys. And some of you just feel tired and beaten down. And that's why you began to use something as a crutch or you, you began to find yourself drifting into habits when it comes to the Internet or things that you know are leading you down a path of destruction. <laughs> Paul says it's for freedom you've been set free. The darkness, leave it in the past. Choose to walk in the light. The author of Hebrews will say, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
Would you stand? And here, here's the beautiful thing is, is this isn't like a you got to like grit your teeth and do this on your own. Some of you, you need to decide that you're going to change. But Jesus promises us that the Holy Spirit will work in cooperation as you walk with him. He will work in cooperation to sanctify you or transform your life. It's a promise. But you do have to say yes, and you do have to confess your sin, and you do have to turn to him. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the story of Esther is that God is going to preserve the line of Messiah so that he could bring salvation to you and to me. And the truth of the gospel is that the wages of the sin is of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if you're in the room and you have not taken the first step, don't try to get free on your own. You can't do it. You have to call out to God. You have to invite him to come into your life. You have to confess your sins and trust in him for your salvation. And then let his Holy Spirit inhabit you and fill you up and ask him to fill me up, Lord, and then let him transform your life. And for some of you, I just want to give you the opportunity. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Whether you're in the room or joining us online right now, that if that's you and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your life and you know you've never crossed that line of faith, you could just call out to him like this today. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned and I cannot make it to God on my own. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again for me. I want to turn away from my sin and turn my life to you. Let me experience your freedom and your peace. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. And if you prayed that sincerely in your heart today, you are a child of God. And Lord, I just pray for all my other friends right here that, that as I've spoken, you've highlighted something in, your, in their life that they know they need to deal with, that they know has been drawing them away from you and putting a wedge in the, their relationship with you or in their relationship with the family member or their spouse. Would you give them the courage to say yes? Would you let them seek the help that they might need or the counseling that they might need or the prayer that they might need to actually get this thing dealt with and taken care of, Lord? Pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.